0: .net rocks episode 998 recorded monday june 16th 2014
1: Thank you very much welcome back to .net rocks it's uh, carl and richard with the happiest .net rocks ever
0: <laughs> thank you <laughs>
1: <laughs> so nice. I can just feel the children holding hands everywhere and singing. It's a small world, after all.
0: Yeah. After listening to this show. Yep. Yep. I, I've done more research for this show than on any of the other ones. Yeah. Just to get all the facts right, but it has affected me way more than I expected.
1: Well, let's uh, roll the roll the music and uh, we'll start things off right. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Tinyurl.com slash nuke pill. <laughs> what? N U K E P I L L. That's right. Potassium iodide tablets. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, this is the treatment. Yeah. So, uh, why don't you tell us why you need these hanging around your house, Richard? <laughs> you don't really.
0: <laughs> but yeah, they, this is what. Uh, they issue when you have nuclear con- uh, when you have radioactive contamination issues, right? So, so uh, because they help uh, grab the potassium iodide is remarkably good at grabbing stray neutrons, so yeah. it will help to suppress the damage that ingesting radioactives will do.
1: So uh, if you live near a nuclear power plant, they like to hand these out to the citizens around there. Well, they normally make-
0: don't need to, but it's like in an emergency. Yeah. That's that's what it's about. Right? Yeah. For the, you know, we did the, the nuclear accident show. Yeah.
1: So, I like that there's 260 customer reviews. So, <laughs> does that mean 260 customers have survived nuclear radiation <laughs> thanks to the... <laughs> well, it IOSA? seems like
0: one of the products that, that would just get those crazy reviews. Maybe we should take a look at a few we of should, them. We should,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. That's
1: it. I, it was just, you know, half
0: kidding, but... That's uh, nice.
1: I don't know. I, I'm sorry, Richard. I know this is a very serious show, and I don't want to take away from the seriousness it. I don't
0: of it. know if it is. We'll see where it goes, man. I know how you and I cope with these things, and, <laughs> and I, I can't believe how much this show's been asked for, too. Yeah, it really has. That uh, I'm just glad to get it done. I don't think we have any darker to go. After this, yeah. it'll all get lighter and more fun.
1: I hope so. So, who's talking to us,
0: Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 960, and that is the geekette we did on nuclear accidents. And, uh, Rob Richardson had a great comment that I thought tied together, uh, a bunch of different thinking. Uh, he said, I've been listening to the show for years, but this is the first time I felt the need to comment Mm. and thanks for another great show, a great geek out. I love the hype free discussion from things of little consequence, like eating a bazillion bananas simultaneously (laughs) all the way up to the big disasters, like when a reactor catches fire and radioactive smoke crosses the world. Yeah. I wish you had discussed another category of nuclear accidents. The ones we humans did purposefully. In particular, the Bikini Atoll experiment. Bikini at all, yeah. uh, though there were catastrophic machinery failures or natural disasters leading up to these events, although there was a big accident, I'll talk about that later on. Mm-hmm. The nuclear distribution and damage to the planet and to mankind is similarly significant, especially to those that were displaced. It would be great to compare and contrast the environmental and cultural impact of the Bikini Atoll experiments with the show's scale of Chernobyl to Fukushima to 80 million bananas. Mm. Uh, keep up the great work. I can't wait to enjoy the next thousand episodes. Me either. So, how many me things did, did Rob just plug into here all at once? He talked about nuclear accidents. He talked about what nuclear weapons did and our thousandth episode, which is like two shows away. That's right. So, Rob... Dude, you rock. Great yes. comment. And and we never did address the beginning Atoll. I don't know if I'm going to do it justice the way you asked today, but I will talk about it. Um, we will get a .NET Rocks mug out to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com.
1: So where do we start with nuclear weapons? Um, it, I, I, I'd i like to start with the uh, the idea that we talked about in one of those nuclear shows that we have the current brand of nuclear power that we have because of the nuclear weapons program
0: true yeah that's more or less true although it's even more fun than that you know i thought i knew a fair bit about nuclear weapons but in making sure i got this show right i did a ton more research and found uh, a bunch of additional information i was also completely enamored of how quickly this happened you know the atomic model the thing we learned at school right yeah. Where an atom has a nucleus with electrons around it and shells. Mm-hmm. You realize that's Rutherford's model from like 1911. Niels Bohr created the more refined version of it by 1913 in the Bohr model. Mm-hmm. Although that gets more about electrons. But this idea that atoms have a nucleus, that was very recent, especially in the context of by 1945, they were detonating a bomb. Mm-hmm. So, in a span of 30 years, this amazing acceleration of understanding. And, of course, it was stimulated by the only thing that seems to move humans quickly, which is war. Unfortunately, true. So, there's this guy. His name is uh, Leo Szilard. Uh, He's a Hungarian. And he was a, a researcher with guys like Edward Teller and, and Enrico Fermi, all of these scientists that were experimenting uh, with... N- the technology around atoms in the 30s. And he's the one who ultimately, uh, you know, in the context of what was going on, World War II is a huge part of this whole thing. So right. as uh, the Nazi party took control of Germany and and people fled, including uh, Leo, he went to America. And there was this realization, there was all this research going on around atomic theory. And so, you know, the stimulus for really creating a nuclear weapon was – The fear that the Germans would do it.
1: And the Germans really weren't doing it, were they? They, No. They thought it was kind of
0: silly. It's gone back and forth a few times. People think they found stuff and so forth. There's lots of argument about this, but it doesn't seem like it was true. And and the letter was 1939. Szilard created a letter. He actually got Einstein to sign it, and they sent it to Roosevelt. Hmm. And Roosevelt, that was the beginning of, uh, the American effort to, to, to build this. But the Brits were working on it at the same time. What did the letter say, Richard? Um, the letter basically th- implied that it's possible to make a weapon from the fissioning of radioactive material and that the Germans could be working on it. And this would be the most powerful, almost inconceivably powerful weapon. Right. Um, which she turned out to be correct. But, you know, and it's, and it's quite amazing to think this is only 20 years or so since the model had even existed. And already they're figuring out and making calculations about the yield of a bomb like this. Although there were plenty of scientists at the time who thought it was impossible. And and there was why, no way Why to do you think do
1: that the Nazis didn't, didn't work on it? Do you think that
0: they didn't think it was possible? Um, a waste I, of money, perhaps? I, th- I think that's part of it. And there was certainly a lot of risk there. I also think that generally speaking, the, the World War II Germany had great engineers, but not as many scientists. A lot of scientists like these guys had fled. Hmm and so focus on advanced research like that was a hard thing to do and in the time that they had available and it is you know this is 1939 this letter comes out they'll detonate a bomb six years later right yeah not that seems impossible time. doesn't it yeah it does that's just inconceivably difficult and they were they and there were so many project possibilities if you know my experience going to Pina Monday which I talked to you a bit about and maybe we'll do a show about sometime in the, in the future same thing like just how little time it took to actually develop something now where's pina this is north of berlin right on the baltic sea and it's where the v2 rocket was developed by werner von braun okay and rocketry factors in nuclear weapons pretty importantly we'll we'll talk about that but mm. you know i don't want to go down that path with such a challenging subject already okay so uh the british were working uh, on understanding um the concept of atomic weaponry as well and uh, they had a project called tube alloys. So that was the code name for it, just like the Americans had the Manhattan Project. The two projects would eventually come together in about 1942. But they, the main thing they were looking for is, well, what can you actually fission? There was this theoretical possibility they, that scientists had determined that said, we can get neutrons to leave atoms. In fact, it happens all the time. And And mm-hmm. at that point, the only naturally occurring product that they could find that did it reliably was uranium. And we've talked about uranium in the nuclear power show. Right. Uh, and they, and they, there's two types of uranium. There's 238 and there's 235. And in natural uh the kind of stuff you dig out of the ground, uh 238 is the bulk of it. 235 represents less than 1%. And 235 has distinctly different behaviors from 238. If when it fissions, it tends to spit out two or three neutrons. And that actually allows you to create a cascade. So, they, they call 235 um, fissile in the fact that it's emitting so many neutrons, as opposed to 238, which is fissionable. If you hit it with a neutron, it'll do something. And we talked about the difference of the, between those two things in the very first
1: nuclear show we did, right. didn't we?
0: Yes. And, and and it's important. And now you get into the whole... And, and this is where they started. If we're going to make a bomb... Uh 238's not going to do it. We're going to need 235. We're going to need in a higher concentration than what natural uranium has. So that's when the enrichment program started. That's the beginning of enrichment. Enrichment's really difficult. Mm-hmm. The, pr- the, the process of enriching uranium is, is a very complex thing, and it was sort of the first step. You actually combine uranium with Fluorine, which is awful stuff, Mm, to create uranium hexafluoride, which is even more awful stuff. Now it's radioactive, highly toxic, and acidic. It'll burn through things. It's like alien blood. Yeah. (laughs) Uh and you have to keep it in a gaseous state, you know, so it's even more dangerous, and pass it through membranes to separate, because the the 235 uh, will be slightly smaller than the 238, you'll get more 235 than 238 with each membrane pass. And you have to do it over and over and over again. Arguably, the, some of the largest factories ever built in World War Two were to create uh, highly enriched uranium, up to 80% U-235, which wow. is what it takes to make a bomb with it. Hmm. Now, at the same time, another discovery was made, and that was in the early reactors that they were building. If you took 238 and you kicked off, because it's fissionable, so it'll emit a few neutrons, but not very many, not very often. But if you spike it with a neutron emitter, it'll fission more. Mm. And when that happens, sometimes it'll make new elements. Now, let's go back to exactly what an element is right so you've got your atomic model yeah and in the center in the nucleus you have a certain number of protons right and those protons actually set what the atom is right what kind of element it is so in the case of uranium you're talking about 92 protons That's in the nucleus pretty darn heavy right and in, and a 238 element has some 92 protons and 146 neutrons which is why it's called u238 yeah right? Mm -hmm. Now, fission occurs. So, a neutron hits the 238 and is added to the nucleus. So, it now becomes uranium-239. It's still uranium, Mm. but it's a little bit heavier. The problem here is that 239 is not particularly stable. The the nucleus is not happy with that. In fact, it has a half-life of 23 minutes. So, in 23 minutes, something's going to happen. What typically happens is that neutron that you added, or one of the neutrons it adds, breaks. So, and it used to be that we believed, and I certainly believe, that a neutron was actually made up of a proton and an electron, with a gluon, a atomic particle, that held them together to mm. make it a neutral. Mm-hmm. That's not accurate. Subsequently, we've learned more uh, that a neutron is actually made up of quarks. Right? You heard of quarks? Sure. So, a neutron contains an up quark and two down quarks. And when it decays, sometimes one of the down quarks will change to an up quark by releasing what's called a W boson. <laughs> and then two up quarks and the one down quark combine to make a proton, and the W boson decays into an electron and an antineutron. Very strange world down there. It is very odd. But the reality is one of the neutrons inside of that U239 atom becomes a proton. And that makes it into a different element. Yep. It's now got an atomic weight of 93. And is that plutonium? That is neptunium. Neptunium. Now this at the point when they were first doing this, this element had never been seen before. Right? It was completely unique. That's why they had to, they had to name it. Mm-hmm. And you know uranium is named for Uranus. Uranus. So they went out to one more planet so they called it neptunium. I wonder if that's why they <laughs> invented
1: Pluto because, you know, they needed another planet to name plutonium after.
0: Well, Pluto'd already been identified as a planet back when it was still a planet. So yeah. the because you're following the pattern here. Neptunium-239 sure. has a half life of about two and a half days. Mm. And then once again that a neutron splits, becomes a proton, and now you have plutonium two thirty nine. And that's the highly desired bomb stuff. Well, they didn't know it at the time. Okay. But they found this reaction that made this interesting element that had never been seen before. Although later, they found there is a little tiny bit of naturally occurring plutonium in the world. It's it's actually 244. It has 94 uh, protons, but it's got 149 neutrons. And it behaves quite differently. Mm. Plutonium is a weird, weird atom uh, and a very unusual element. It has a tremendous uh, range of behavior. It actually has... Six stable isotopes, 238, 239, 240, 241, 242, and 244.
1: Now, Richard, you may be talking beyond some of our listeners' comprehension. What
0: is an isotope? So, now, all, in every case, in, plut- in the case of plutonium, in the case of any atom, the number of protons is consistent. So, for plutonium, it's 94 protons. But the number of neutrons can vary, and that's what an isotope is. For many atoms, there are very few. Or for many elements, there are very few isotopes—one or two. Okay. Right? Hydrogen has three. So right?
1: hydrogen can be in three different states, depending on—or not states, but three different configurations or three isotopes different isotopes, right?
0: Depending on its uh, number of neutrons. Number of neutrons. It has no neutrons and it's hydrogen. It has one neutron and it's deuterium, or it has two neutrons and it's tritium. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, and plutonium has six. Woo hoo! Yeah. Of which all of them are, while well, stable, all of them with the exception of two forty four don't occur in nature. You have to manufacture them. But the interesting aspect of plutonium was that it was incredibly fissile. It was more fissile than two thirty five, and even more importantly, in the context of the Manhattan Project, they could manufacture it relatively quickly. Mm. So in uh, 1943 in Washington state at the Hanford site they built a building called the B reactor and started constructing this reactor it went so that was october of 1943 by september of 44 they're actually running the reactor wow and by february of 45 they're delivering plutonium to los alamos to build the first bomb uh, that was the trinity bomb right so they called the gadget So, just so fast. Yeah. But it's one of the reasons that plutonium has come to dominate weapon making is that they can produce it with much more quickly and less expensively than enriching uranium. Now, they've subsequently gotten better ways to enrich uranium and they use it for other things. But at the time, that's what actually happened. And uh, interesting that that, the Hanford facility in, in Washington State is all shut down now. It's actually Bill Clinton that shut it down. But subsequently to them uh, making plutonium there, they also made uh, started manufacturing trinium. That same facility uh, started making trinium in 1949 that helped build the first uh, hydrogen bombs or what they call thermonuclear bombs in 1952. Mm. So they started making plutonium. They, 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 here's this drag race to develop nuclear weapons uh, using both enriched uranium and plutonium-239. And... Uh, th- It's not an exact science, right? I mean, they're inventing all new technologies here. When you run a reactor that starts breeding plutonium-239, it doesn't only – it's not completely uniform. You're going to make some 239. You're even going to make some 240, which has different behaviors. Right. And you're still going to have a lot of uranium left over. So, you have to actually come up with a fuel processing uh, uh, technique. Uh, which they did in the same site, which is uh, a an environmentalist nightmare. The bismuth phosphate process to extract out the plutonium was not funny, but it was what it took to create pure plutonium, and it was faster and easier than making uh, enriched uranium. Okay, so they the scientists had done their math well enough to really understand that uranium two thirty five was going to be fissile given a critical mass. So when you get these kinds of highly radioactive materials they uh, that emit neutrons so rapidly if you get enough of them together they will create a cascade one neutron three neutrons fly out of that uh, atom hit three other atoms which creates three more and you get this rapid chain, chain that reaction. ultimately can become the explosion yeah but you don't want it to happen all the time you want a bomb to go off when you want it to go off right So the challenge is to keep the fissile material below critical mass until you need to make it, make it go off.
1: So so creating a detonator is quite a different thing than just sticking a fuse in it and lighting it.
0: You are exactly correct, sir. The equivalent detonator when building nuclear weapons is what they call a neutron initiator. So a neutron initiator is something that will create a burst of neutrons relatively easily. And they figured out that if you took a combination of beryllium and polonium beryllium is a very light metal it's, it's uh, slightly heavier than lithium and polonium which is quite a toxic uh, compound and you crush them together they will emit a massive burst of neutrons mm. and you want those neutrons to stick around they they there are high energy neutrons and there are low energy neutrons and it turns out that low energy neutrons actually tend to sp- cause more atoms to fission mm. So, one of the things we learned in, in building nuclear weapons was that you wanted tampers or materials that would reflect neutrons back into the reactant mass so that those neutrons had more of a chance to break up and cause more fission. So, it's kind of like having a candle instead of a flash. Right. You just want something that's slow burning and emitting That will actually a cook steam. more stuff. Yeah, yeah. Although everything we're talking about here is happening in, in microseconds right, picoseconds right. even. So... They only built uh, – the, the, the gadget, the trinium uh, detonation, was actually made from plutonium. It wasn't made from U-235 uh, because there was more of it and they could – and they were – it was a more complex bomb design. But let's talk about the little boy bomb. Okay. Um, that, so, now we're moving into uh, – we're going to deliver their first weapons. And what a terrible name, little boy. Yeah. But this was the u- uranium bomb. And it's not exactly little. It weighed about 10,000 pounds. And it was actually made from a, they call it a gun-style bomb. It literally was made from a naval uh, six-and-a-half-inch gun barrel. Wow. Which they wrapped a bomb around it because it was strong enough. The interesting thing here is you need to combine these uh, this uh, radioactive long enough for it to go and fission thoroughly. So you need a strong container for it. that will last long enough to let the fissile effects go on. The inside of Little Boy was 141 pounds of uranium-235. Enriched up to about 80%. Which, again, incredible effort to be able to enrich that far. Wow, yeah. Uh, it's split into two chunks. There's a piece called the projectile slug and a piece called the target slug. The projectile slug is actually a cylinder. It's made up of a set of rings that are about six inches in diameter with a four-inch hole in the center of it. It's about seven inches long. The target slug's at the other end of the bomb. It's four inches wide and seven inches long. And they're basically going to have an explosion happen inside this gun barrel that's going to sling that cylinder with a hollow cylinder over the solid cylinder. That will create a critical mass. This is an incredibly unsafe bomb design, by the way. Yeah, it sounds pretty dangerous. Yeah, because the bottom line is all you need to do is bring those two chunks of uranium together and they will explode. How well they explode is affected by how quickly you bring it together. But they're going to explode one way or the other. So, there was real concern that if the aircraft carrying the bomb crashed, that would be sufficient impact to slam those pieces together and still have the bomb go off. Maybe not as efficiently, but it still would have gone off. Mm. Even worse, if that uranium was submerged in water, because water is a moderator, For reactions, it actually provides neutrons to exchange back and forth. The bomb would start to cook if it was in water. So many challenges. Like, And remember where they're using this. This is Japan. So, they're at Tianan, which is a little island in the Pacific, and they have to fly over the ocean to get to Japan with it. Yeah. So, very, very dangerous stuff. And it's one of the reasons they ultimately moved away from this bomb design is that it just was too easy to have it go wrong. Right. There was almost no way to stop it. It was kind of like the sea of uh, bombs. You know? <laughs> it's your foot. Yes, and it's super dangerous. Yeah, and I I want to go through the details of the Hiroshima event. Not only I've been to Hiroshima, uh, and I've seen what they've done and the, and the stories they've told, and it's really the best evidence we have of of the the dangers of these weapons, just how serious we're talking about here and what happens. So, and you all we've all heard pieces of the story already. The the Anola Gay. Uh, was the aircraft. The bomb is massive. It's much bigger than regular bombs. They, uh, they strap it to the underside of the aircraft and fly it out there. Uh, pieces I hadn't heard before, but uh, read when I went there. Americans were concerned that these bombs wouldn't work and that they didn't want the technology falling in other p- in the, the uh, hands of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. So they dropped fake little boy bombs all over Japan so that they would ignore them. They didn't do anything. They weren't interesting, you know. So they would ignore it. If the real one was dropped and didn't work, they hopefully would just ignore it as well. So the bomb that the Enola uh, Gay dropped was technically called a Little Boy bomb. That was the Little Boy bomb, huh. and we'll talk about the Fat Man bomb in a bit. Okay, because that was with the that was the other kind of bomb. So uh, uh, August sixth, nineteen forty-five, the Enola Gay. Uh, is targeting Hiroshima. Hiroshima had not been attacked by the Americans at all. They wanted the city to be intact to be able to test the bomb, which and I, I think is a do, little cynical. And I do remember that
1: Japan was warned that uh and I think it was a couple of days beforehand to, you know, surrender or we will unleash a weapon never seen by the likes of humanity. Yes. We don't want to do this, but you have the option to surrender now, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and
0: it's, you know, they were suggesting standard, to surrender all along. Standard they, there's some evidence they may were considering uh, surrender, but they didn't have enough time. You know, it was a difficult process. Right. Uh, and and you can get a lot of conjecture on there. There's also a lot of discussion of should we just let it off over the ocean just to show them how big this thing was? But what if it doesn't work? Right. You know, on and on. And on. I think everybody was trying to do the best they could. And if you ever get a chance to go to Hiroshima, you should go because the the –
1: it's Museum really
0: they've done there. The way they've memorialized this is extraordinarily good. Yeah. So, they, it was a sunny day because he needed to be. This is this is the old school bombing. There's no lasers. There's no radar. Well, there's yep. radar, but not like that. They had to bomb in clear uh, light. And Hiroshima is an interesting town. Uh, it has a, a river that runs through it, like most cities do. And that river actually splits in two around an island uh, in the front of the uh, – uh, alongside the edge of the mainland. There's a bridge called the Iowa Bridge, and it is a three-way bridge. So, it goes across the river, and then it also connects in the center to the island. T-shaped bridge. And that was the aiming point that the Enola Gay used because it was so distinct. It was easy to find. Um, They dropped the bomb from 31,000 feet. It was designed to detonate at 1,900 feet to maximize the overpressure. It missed by about 800 feet. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about overpressure? Well, actually, what are we talking about? When, why are they dropping this bomb? Right. Forget the research. Why do you bomb anything? Like, what are we trying to achieve here? You know, go back to World War II and you think about why were they bombing? What was the goal? The goal was to get the Japanese and Germans to st- surrender and stop the war. Now, it wasn't just beating them in submission. They were deliberately – They, the Germans had more advanced technology than than the Americans. Do you agree? Yeah, well, certainly at the time, yes. Yeah, at the time, the Germans were running the advanced machine, and America outproduced them and bombed their ability to make war. They went after factories. They weren't trying to blow up cities for the sake of blowing up cities. They were blowing up factories that tended to be near cities. Right. Right? And you can argue some of the stuff they did in Japan was above and beyond. The firebombing of Tokyo, for example, it's like, does that actually limit people's ability to, to... conduct war but overall strategic bombing is about eliminating the enemy's ability to conduct war we're not trying to kill people here we're trying to render you unable to fight although
1: you certainly could argue that uh the united states was trying to kill people with this
0: you know in one sense that's what they intended to do yes well there and there was a military facility at hiroshima although there were plenty of civilians as well lots of them okay yeah so, this bomb detonates. The 5 PSI overpressure is sufficient to basically level every building in the area. Now, 141 pounds of U-235 are on that bomb. The, uh, it, as the bomb hits 1,900 feet using a, a, a radar sensor, it fires an igniter that detonates cordite that accelerates the 85-pound uh, piece of projectile slug down the length of the tube, slams into the lighter target slug and a 16,000 ton TNT explosion, a 16 kiloton explosion takes place. Only 1.7%, about two and a half pounds of the U-25 actually fissioned to generate that explosion. Wow. And about a 10th of an ounce is converted into pure energy. Wow. So the yield is not that high. It's actually quite an inefficient bomb, relatively speaking. But everything within a mile of that explosion point is completely leveled. There's an x-ray blast when a nuclear explosion takes place. And the x-ray blast uh, creates a shockwave that creates that overpressure that will basically blow down every building. Even concrete reinforced buildings are gutted. Their interiors are blown out of them. All kinds of debris is blown everywhere. Following right behind that shockwave is a fireball. Right. The fireball is about 1,200 foot in diameter, and it's running around 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which means instantaneously everything flammable explodes into flame. Right. And within 20 minutes, there's a firestorm two miles in diameter across the center of Hiroshima. So, it burns everything. Um, The radiation kill is about three-quarters of a mile from the detonation point. Now, All of those people are killed by the firestorm anyway, so it's almost hard to measure. But there are interesting side effects of this. The radiation blast, the gamma radiation is so powerful, it actually bleaches stone, except where it's shadowed. So, for example, on the bridge, the railings, which had bars in them, uh created a shadow from that blast, and you could actually see on the roadway itself, the roadway we bleached except where the bars were, so the you saw a shadow of the railings from the bridge on the road surface. Wow. And uh, in the museum in Hiroshima, they have kept a set of stairs from a bank almost directly underneath the detonation where a woman was sitting when the bomb went off. And the reason we know she's there is we can see the outline of her legs and her dress where she was sitting when the bomb went off. Wow. As a shadow in the stone. Wow. The fireball rises into the stratosphere, blacking out the day. It also pulls all of the ash and smoke, debris, and all of that leftover uranium into the air. About 40 minutes later, as it cools going into the stratosphere, it comes down. down as rain. Yeah. Black rain. The rain is sticky. It's full of carbon residues. And it is incredibly radioactive. And poisonous and lethal yeah there were probably sixty thousand people and these numbers are always still debated killed at the moment of that explosion and the ones that were incinerated the fire Thirty-six thousand people survived that blast and they're burned lots of them are burned they crawl out of the fire and as the rain comes down they're burned they're hot right they drink the water and almost all of them will be dead within a month The radiation from an explosion like that is mostly from neutrons, lots of them. Uh, they they bubble roof tiles. And there's the two kinds of radiation that you end up with. You have the immediate radiation. If you're exposed to it at the time, that probably killed you. And then you have what's called residual radiation. So that radiation goes into things, into different materials, and knocks neutrons out of them, making them unstable. But the nucleides that are generated from that are relatively short-lived. When the Americans actually arrive in Hiroshima at the end of the war, because let's face it, the war did not lie on the loss long after that, Hiroshima was still quite radioactive. But within a year, it was almost at the same radiation level as normal background radiation. So the radiation dissipates relatively rapidly, especially when you get rid of certain materials. But remember that uranium has been scattered all over. It was actually blown in the wind and it gets rinsed into the ground uh, with water. And over time, it will decay, but it's impossible to clean up. Yeah, and uh, it just falls down below stimic radiation levels. A lot of that radiation is survivable as long as it's external to you. It's when you ingest it. And if you again get a chance to go to the Hiroshima site, the museum is two circular buildings connected by a bridge. And the first circular building, you you walk around it bo- around it both ways. One direction is the Japanese story of the war, and it ends at the bomb being dropped. And the other direction around is the American story of the war, and it ends at the bomb being dropped. And then you go across the bridge, and the other building is purely after the bomb is dropped. Hmm. But there were survivors. Uh, there were people with radiation injuries that survived, um, thousands of them. Hmm. But uh, their lives are changed, and uh, the consequences are dire. But the bottom line is today, Hiroshima is uh, an inhabited city. It did recover. Uh, it took a while, and it did recover. Right, and that's the only detailed story I want to tell this whole show about the effects of a, a nuclear blast because I, it's going to be the same every time. It's horrible every time.
1: It's horrible, and the fact is, is that that was a little tiny. That was
0: a sixteen kiloton tiny bomb.
1: Bomb. What we have on one Seawolf submarine is how many times that? The I figure I should talk about the Ohio class. The Ohio class, which yeah. launched
0: out of Crotton. That's right
1: across the river from the studio. Yeah.
0: A modern Ohio class submarine carries 24 D5 Trident missiles, each one capable of uh, carrying 11 Merv or multiple reentry vehicle uh, warheads. Each of those warheads, 475 kilotons. There's more explosive force in an Ohio class submarine than everything that was let off in World War II ever. Let's talk about plutonium bombs. They, right. the, so, the Nagasaki bomb, the bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki, was a bomb called Fat Man. Uh, there was actually originally a Thin Man, but it was a gun-type bomb design as well. The problem is that plutonium is so reactive, so hot, that they didn't think they could actually make that style of bomb, where you accelerate two pieces together, work. Mm. It would go off before it had fully fused, and so it wouldn't have been a good bomb. So, they went with a much more difficult design, an implosion-style bomb. So, taking it, plutonium has an interesting characteristic. It's, it's there's a thing called an allotrope. You ever heard of allotropes? Yeah. I can't tell you what it is, but I have <laughs> heard of it. I have heard of it. So, an allotrope is uh, when a given a, an element can be in different forms, right? So, a common kind of allotrope is like, uh, carbon has many allotropes. It can be graphite that you use in a pencil. Okay. And it can be diamond. There okay. are six allotropes to plutonium. And what's amazing about the variation plu- uh, of uh, allotropes and plutonium is that it significantly changes the density. So, depending on how you heat it and how hot you make it, it'll actually change in density. If you melt plutonium, which you melt at a very high degree, it's like 1,200 degrees to melt plutonium. Yeah. It actually gets denser. Really? Because it sits... No, there's these six different allotropes and they're based on different crystalline forms. But this ability of plutonium to get bigger and smaller like that led to an interesting thought around in this implosion style bomb because the idea was take a chunk of plutonium that's subcritical it's not big enough to detonate its own and put a shockwave explosion around it all the way around it to compress it and you'll actually drive it above criticality and it'll detonate okay you can use a lot less plutonium
1: and is plutonium how is plutonium made i guess that's the question
0: Well, you know, they've now, they've made the plutonium in the Hanford B reactor. Then they learned to machine it, which they're machining a metal that had never existed before, which is an interesting problem. And that's where they discovered this allotropic behavior that as you heated it up, it behaved differently. Mm. And, but ultimately they are able to make a a, two hemispheres creating a ball about six inches across, weighing 13 pounds. That is a subcritical mass of plutonium. And isn't plutonium also a natural byproduct of
1: nuclear fission with uh, nuclear power?
0: Yes. Well, it, now there are reactors that are better at making it, like the Hanford reactor, where that was its sole purpose. And, but light water reactors make it all the time. Right. And so,
1: so, did we actually tell this story about how the uh, nuclear power industry is related to the war industry?
0: Well, we did in the nuclear power show. That, that there was – this is always a byproduct of it. Uh, the, the bottom line is when you work with uranium, one of the simplest uh, relationships you have is this three-step sequence in about two and a half days mm. to making plutonium as a byproduct. And the plutonium is uh, much more efficient for nuclear weapons. Right. So, in the Nagasaki uranium. bomb, the Fat Man bomb – you have a sphere of only 13 and a half pounds of plutonium as opposed to 141 pounds mm. of uranium in the little boy bomb mm. And then it's wrapped in various layers. So that's actually several different layers of explosive. So they they built this uh, there's an outermost sphere of aluminum. Inside of that are 32 hexagonal pieces of composition B, which is a kind of explosive with detonators in it. Underneath that is a baratol explosive, which is a slower explosive. And then another layer of comp B explosive, ultimately to a piece of aluminum that is about 18 inches in diameter. Mm. And inside of that is your uh plutonium sphere. And there's a layer of uranium involved as well, because the uranium is used as a reflector to increase the amount of neutron reaction. Right in the center, at the center of this sphere of this sphere of plutonium, is a polonium beryllium uh, initiator. The thing I'm talking about, when you crush it, it actually gives you a burst of neutrons right now one of the things that's interesting about this bomb design is that there was a safety element to it the center core of it the thing containing a piece of the plutonium and that initiator could be removed they actually reached inside it and unscrewed it because plutonium once it was manufactured like this they actually gave it a coating of nickel to keep it stable and stop it from uh, uh, oxidizing so it was safe to handle but it was warm hmm It actually was uh, radiating enough that it would be uh, generating heat. But it wouldn't hurt you. Not if you, as long as you didn't eat it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But you don't want to eat it. Yeah, yeah. But it meant that when they transported the bomb to uh, Tianan Island, where the bombing missions were taking place, it didn't have the cores in it. They transported the cores separately. So the bomb was safe to travel with. And that's a big piece of delivering weaponry is to make sure that it only explodes when you want it to explode. That it explodes reliably, but only when you want it to. Mm -hmm. And so this ability to remove the core is an ongoing feature in every bomb developed since then. Now, the way this... Explode this weapon works is again complicated. You drop it and you have a radar system that figures out the right point to detonate it at and it fires those 32 detonators at exactly the same time. The timing on the detonators is incredibly important so that all of the explosive goes off evenly and compresses this, uh, compresses this entire structure, including the plutonium down. Mm -hmm. Now, when it crushes it down, we only have Thirteen and a half pounds of of your of plutonium total two point two pounds of that will actually fission. Twenty percent of the yield is actually the uranium tamper, the wrapper that around it also fissions, and only about a third or a thirtieth of an ounce of plutonium is converted to energy. But that thirteen pounds of plutonium becomes a twenty one kiloton explosion. Holy crap! So it's lighter, smaller, and more powerful design of a bomb so that is those were the original two fission style nuclear weapons and I would point out that the entire time that they were being developed there were spies both in the British program the two alloy program and in the Manhattan Project program mm. and they were communicating information about these weapons to the Soviets when uh, when it was actually announced at the Potsdam uh, Treaty that they were the Americans were going to build this weapon, apparently Stalin already knew about it, hmm. so he wasn't terribly impressed about the whole thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Uh, Richard, yeah, buddy,
1: uh, I'm not going to tell a joke because this is not joke-worthy material, and, and I know he, this is affecting you. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> so, it just is. Like, but- now you know why I've been depressed for so long. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully, you know, we can uh, have a have a scotch and. And uh, toast being alive at the end of the 20th century, because it's a miracle. Yeah. Uh, but it is time to give away a de-experienced subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today. And leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at DevExpress.com superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Scott Frederickson.
0: Yeah. congratulations scott
1: yep golf club for you scott just won the d experience subscription from dev express that's a big pile of awesome in one box and if you don't know what we're talking about go to.netrocks.com, rocks.com click on the big get free stuff button answer a few questions and join the fan club we have thousands of members all over the world every show we give away great stuff like the d experience subscription and every december we give away five thousand dollars worth of stuff and we've done it twice now both winners as you probably have heard uh requested new new development environments with phones and mobile stuff so if it's you you get to choose you get to tell us what you want and um uh, it's just a whole pile of awesome
0: and we just have to talk you into no we're not Nigerian princes
1: that's right yeah. <laughs> all right so you also hear people talk about the a bomb the h bomb the neutron bomb right the atom bomb the hydrogen bomb and the neutron bomb what what variation of bomb are those? And did they come earlier or later?
0: We've only talked about fission bombs, right? Just using a heavy material, a heavy fissile material, U-235 or, or plutonium-239, compressing it or accelerating it and slamming it into a critical mass to make it detonate. And you can only make those so big. Uh, in theory, there's no uh, there's no certainty here that the, the Americans were able to make a pure fission bomb as large as 500 kilotons. Uh, but if you want to make a bigger bomb, you have to involve fusion. Okay. So we've only talked about fission so far, which is taking heavy elements and then splitting them and releasing energy that way. And when we talk about the A bomb or the atomic bomb, is that what we're talking about? Typically, we're talking about that. The names are misused. Yeah, N- it. Apparently, nobody in the in the weapons business ever refers to a bomb as a hydrogen bomb. H bomb. Yeah, I hear
1: that all the time, though.
0: The, yes, the H bomb. It, it isn't real. Okay. Uh, it it is uh, more complicated than that. Like everything. Sure. But you have to involve fusion. Just understand that every kind of fusion bomb has a fission bomb inside it to make enough energy to do fusion. Fusion is very, very hard to do. Right. Okay. And most fusion reactions involve deuterium or trinium or both. Now, deuterium is the hydrogen atom with with a neutron on it because normally hydrogen hasn't got a neutron. And deuterium is naturally occurring. It occurs in seawater. There's not very much of it, but it's around. Right. And you can actually extract out the deuterium and make what they call heavy water. Hmm. We talked about this in the Nuclear Power Show yep. because, uh, you know, the can-do reactor is a heavy water reactor. Right. And trinium is even rarer where it has two neutrons. But you can manufacture trinium. It's just expensive and it's not stable. Trinium tends to lose a, a neutron and become deuterium again. So, while it's expensive to make trinium, it decays at a rate of about 5% a year. If you have trinium gas in a bottle, it's going to gradually become deuterium at a fairly substantial rate. So, the first improvements made to these fission bombs was a technique called boosted fission. At the very core of the bomb, instead of of having just the uh, initiator, you would actually put some deuterium or trinium gas. So, take the same design of the bomb as the Fat Man bomb. It's just that in the center of the plutonium, you put some de- deuterium and trinium gas. And then when you detonate it, it almost will double the power of the bomb. Like it was such a simple add. Wow. To just add a little bit of that. In fact, one of the fun parts now is you have a thing called dial yield. Depending on how much trinium you inject into the center of the bomb, it affects how much you're going to yield. So you can easily, you can take exactly the same bomb, the fat man bomb. If you put no trinium in it, it's a 20 kiloton explosion you pump a lot of trinium into that center, you'll get a 40 kiloton explosion. Mm. So you can vary the yield as necessary. And in fact, by the early 1950s, middle 1950s, they've refined this design so well that they can make the bomb progressively smaller and smaller and smaller. In 1956, there's a thing called the Swan device, which is so small that they actually make uh, a recoilless rifle shell called the XM388 Davy Crockett And I'm sure if you look that up, you'll see a photo of it. Mm -hmm. It just looks like a big missile. Or not even a missile. It looks like a giant shell. Hmm. But that was a a nuclear weapon a soldier could fire. Hmm. Doesn't make it a good idea. Right. But you were able to do that. So boosted fission is sort of the norm. Because it's fairly simple. And this basic design, the implosion-style plutonium weapon with boosted fission, is normal. Now, the interesting thing about is that... D- that trinium injected in the center of the bomb doesn't add to the explosive force. What it does is it creates a lot more free neutrons and those additional neutrons mean more of the plutonium fissions. Okay. So it's all about how much fission can we get out of it? And it just substantially increases it. Now, the, the, the bomb or which is the, what we most people refer to as an H bomb or hydrogen bomb It's actually the formal name would be staged radiation implosion weapon. Okay. So now you have actually two different bombs in one package. You have a fission bomb, which is your primary, and that creates the energy, typically in the form of x-rays, to compress a secondary, which actually does fusion. This is called radiation implosion, and it's as insane as you think it is. I know.
1: I mean, once we stop, couldn't we just stop it? Okay, we can blow up the world. Why do we have to build bigger weapons? We
0: couldn't blow up the world yet. We were pretty good at shredding individual cities, but I'll get to the world destroyer in a minute. Give me some time. All right. Okay. (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. We're going to get there. Don't worry. I haven't scared you with big
1: bombs yet. But at this point, we can destroy an entire city with one bomb.
0: Yeah, and that relatively was small city. city. We we vaporize a square mile of it. I don't want to, I'm talking about big bombs, right? So the combination of fission and fusion together is really interesting. They call this fission fusion bombs, and sometimes fission fusion fission bombs. So you're using the uh, uh the Swan device, a smaller version of the Fat Man bomb, more compact, to create a burst of energy sufficient to reflect these X rays, and that's the secret part. How do you reflect X rays? To the cylinder, the cylinder, uh, you know, in the early versions of it, they were trying to use straight trinium in a gas form, but it wasn't very stable. But they actually discovered they could use lithium deuteride. So, lithium is a very light metal. It's the next element after helium. Right. So, hydrogen has one proton, helium has two protons, lithium has three. Sure. Right? Yep. And there are a couple of different isotopes of lithium. There's lithium-6, so that's three protons, three neutrons, and lithium-7, three protons, four neutrons, right? Okay. So, lithium deuteride is actually a, 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 a metallic compound that you can create fission with. Is this what you painted your gym teacher's tires with, Richard? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's ammonium iodide. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> we're, we're going to let that one go. <laughs> so when you, you take the cylinder, uh, and in the center of the cylinder, you have more plutonium and then surrounded that is this lithium deuteride mm-hmm. and you have the X ray, uh, based radiation implosion compress it, you get a much more powerful explosion. How much more? We go from around 40 kilotons, 50 kilotons to six megatons. Whoa. Yeah. That's a huge difference. A hundred times more power. Wow. And actually, we've made mistakes. So going back to Rob's comment where he talked about Bikini Atoll, there was a bunch of different tests of weapons on the Bikini Atoll. And no open air testing of nuclear weapons, no testing of nuclear weapons at all is a good idea. But the disaster that he was referring to was the Castle Bravo test. And this is in March of 1954. So they were building – they were, the big challenge here was to build a thermonuclear weapon, right, this two-stage weapon, uh, with about a six megaton yield. And they used uh, – they were using lithium-7 to uh, to provide some additional fusion elements, but it provided much more. So instead of six megatons, they yielded 15 megatons. Oh, man. Two and a half times more powerful.
1: And did they know that it was going to be fifteen megatons? No. When they detonated it. And no. Therein lies the problem.
0: Yes. They found a new that the lithium seven did some fusion that they didn't expect. And when you say some, I mean two and a half times. And that created a six thousand five hundred foot wide crater, um, and uh, killed a group of of guys fishing out in the ocean several hundred miles away. It just. And, and destroyed a bunch of habitats, some other islands. Like it was a catastrophe. Yeah. But you also got to remember the time that we're at. It's 1954. The cold war is in full swing, right? right? Like look, just set it into context. The, uh, the Berlin air left. So, you know, it's the end of World War two. The, uh, Germany's been cut up into pieces. Yep. Berlin is inside Eastern Germany, Walls but it's up. still got the allies in it. The Soviets try and cut off Berlin to drive the the Americans, French, and English out. So they instead start using DC threes and supply the city completely by air. Yeah, right. I mean, this is the Cold War in full bore. And to top it off, by 1950, you know the the uh, the Soviets detonated their first nuclear weapon, which is almost an exact copy of Fat Man in 1949. And in mm. 1950, they figured out who the spies were. Hmm. So, and that's when McCarthyism starts. You know, right. we think Senator McCarthy's kind of crazy what they did in McCarthyism was without a doubt a witch hunt, but it was founded on a real issue, which was that the most important secrets of the American military had been revealed to the Soviets. And we can't trust anyone. And they went nuts. They went without nuts. a doubt. So when yeah. you think about those night that that time, the nineteen fifties, we're still just starting to understand the radio it's only been less than 10 years since Hiroshima we're still trying to understand exactly the consequences of radiation how things are how long things are going to last the city's being rebuilt right and they're trying to build better weapons so you know when the soviets had the atom bomb right the fission bomb we had to make one better and that was the fission fusion bomb
1: yeah and that it, started the the arms race that progressed until we had enough weapons to destroy the world what a hundred times over?
0: Uh, more, more than that. But it, it gets worse than that. I'm mean, not. This is still just trying to make a pretty good explosion. Yeah, right. Uh, and that was a two stage bomb. There are three stage bombs too, which created the largest detonation ever, uh, the Tsar Bomba. Now, I want, I want, I want to talk about the Tsar Bomba, but let's get to that later because you also asked a question about neutron bombs, right? And I remember hearing about them as a kid. Yeah, sure, me right? too. That whole idea, and they were supposed to be people killers, right? I didn't know anything about it, but I just remember. Oh, the neutron bomb. Oh, yeah, Ooh, yeah. The, scary. I, I, bad, bad bomb. Yeah. Reading about real neutron bombs, the official name is enhanced radiation warhead. What a nice name. Yeah, enhanced. Thanks. Yes, great. So you enhanced my life right off the planet. Thank you. That's it. So you have these things inside the bombs called tampers, and the tampers are designed to reflect neutrons back to the fission point. Right. Yeah. And so you can use different kinds of tampers. Some tampers are also fissionable, like you'll use uranium, both 238 or 235 if you really want it to be hot, or you can uh, use a tamper like lead, which will reflect the neutrons but won't actually fission itself. And so you can build, you can take this design, the thermonuclear design, and you can make it far more powerful by adding additional fissional layers. Or you can tamp it down. You, we start talking about percentages of yield of fission versus fusion. Mm-hmm. And the more fission, the sort of dirtier the bomb is. And the more fusion, the, quote, cleaner the bomb is. And just to be clear, no bomb is good. <laughs> yeah. Okay? They're all bad. But they're, it's sort of a question of how where the energy is created and what sort of damage you can do. Right. So, here's what a neutron bomb is. A neutron bomb uses tampers. To minimize the uh, – to instead of catching the neutrons, to actually have them spread out. So, they're using the neutrons to maximum effect. It makes a much smaller explosion because normally you use those neutrons to create additional fission. So, you have a right. bigger explosion. Right. But you up the amount of neutron radiation by about four times. Wow. So, a neutron – a real neutron bomb, they they don't have as big a bang, but they have a lot more neutrons. Now, why would you do this? Again, Back back to the idea – The goal is not to kill people, per se, right? At least not civilians. And the idea that neutron bombs don't damage buildings is false. Any nuclear explosion has enough overpressure to level most buildings. The neutron bomb was actually designed to kill tank crews. Really? So let's back up to the 1950s. Is that
1: the propaganda or is
0: that the actual... That is fact.
1: That's a fact.
0: So in the 1950s, when this technology is being developed, what is the concern? The Soviets have one of the largest standing armies in the world. They have a huge number of tanks and a huge amount of equipment left over from World War II, and they've continued to develop it. And Europe is terrified that they're going to roll across. After all, they've captured a big chunk of Europe. Right. Right? The Eastern Bloc. Already. And they are – Europe is blown to pieces. Yeah. Right? They're trying to rebuild. They've lost most of everything. America helps form NATO, right? right. Which was really, what is NATO really but a guarantee? America will come if the Soviets roll. Well, and yeah, not just America, but all of all of the United countries. Right. All of the countries in NATO would work together wherever they would come from. The most likely place they'd come through is an area called the Northern Plains uh, that roll through the Baltic states, yep. Poland, and Germany. And that's been
1: the, the historical... Uh, leveling field of Europe. Poland has been invaded many, many times because of that.
0: Napoleon went one way, you know, so forth, right? There's been lots and lots of of war through there. The reality at the time was there's too many of them. Like, we're not going to be able to stop them. I I would argue that NATO was far more likely to use nuclear weapons than the Soviets ever were. Because the Soviets had conventional forces, lots of them. Mm. The big concern was the Soviets are going to roll across Germany and roll across Poland with a massive number of tanks. And tanks can survive nuclear explosions. The blast and fire effects just don't affect a tank all that much. But neutron radiation, neutron radiation is something they can't defend against Hmm. within a certain range. So, the neutron bomb was actually designed. The production version of a neutron bomb, they actually made 350 of these, was the The W79 8-inch shell. It was an 155-millimeter artillery shell, yielding a 1.1 kiloton explosion. So, a small explosion, relatively speaking. Relatively. But creating a massive number of neutrons to kill the tank crews in their tanks. Got it. You'd have to detonate these every kilometer or so to actually kill all the tanks reliably. Mm. And you leave the tanks so radioactive... That you can't put new crews into them for quite a long period of time. Right. So, if the Soviets rolled across the the northern plain there, you could get a bunch of artillery crews together, fire these things off in a line, and basically freeze a bunch of tanks with irradiated bodies inside them. In one bomb right you get in a small area you
1: know because tanks are rolling in a small area right. they're not But you probably have
0: to fire a bunch of them because they the right. the explosion is small this is not mile-wide explosions right this is half that yeah and it'll still blow down all the buildings but it'll kill all the guys in the tanks that's mm. real neutron bombs which okay. by the way have all been taken out of service yeah so they're not they were retired in the 1990s they don't they don't exist anymore and thank goodness for that yeah and that's not the most horrible bomb my friend Okay. Do you remember the? You ever married here again? Was we were kids? Cause we grew up in the cold war. Do you remember the cobalt bomb? Do you ever hear that term? I never heard of the cobalt bomb. The cobalt bomb. Did you say
1: cobalt? Cause, cobalt. Cause that is a language that really dropped a bomb in my education. That's
0: for <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, man. No, cobalt like blue. Cobalt like blue. And it turns out the element is blue. Gotcha. Cobalt blue is a thing. So naturally occurring cobalt has a, a is cobalt 59. And it was actually uh, Leo Sislard. Remember the guy who wrote the original letter to get the Americans to build the bomb? That guy. Proposed in 1950 that we, instead of using a tamper of lead or uranium, we use a tamper of cobalt. If you used a tamper of cobalt and detonated the explosion, the byproduct of irradiating cobalt with that explosion would make cobalt-60, which is radioactive. Mm. Strongly radioactive. It also has a half-life of five and a half years. Hmm. So if you fired a bunch of these into the relatively high atmosphere, you could quickly blanket the entire planet in radioactive cobalt. And they would have to stay underground for at least five years. That's just the half-life, right? In 10 years, it would be half as much again and half as much again. He was basically documenting, here's how you kill a planet. With the thought, we got to avoid doing this. Right. They call this a salted bomb. And you could salt it with other things, too. But the cobalt 59 was the perfect salting. Uh, and salting means, again, enhanced. Yes. But it's again, an- get back to what was the goal exactly? Did you really just want to spread radiation around? That makes it a radiological weapon less than a nuclear weapon. Uh, alongside when he did that in 1950 and the word sort of got out, there was a guy named Neville Shute who wrote a book called On the Beach in 1957. Uh, I don't recommend it to your reading because it's really a terrible book, but it was the, it was, became popular. In fact, I think it's reading in most universities about the idea that the northern hemisphere of the planet had a nuclear war using cobalt bombs and has killed everybody, poisoned the planet. And that the story is actually set in Australia uh, as they are in communication with the rest of the world as the winds pump this cobalt uh, toxin over the whole planet, gradually coming south. Uh, and not to give away the ending, but the, the people in Australia decide to commit suicide rather than wait to be die of radiation poisoning and yeah. everybody dies.
1: Well, that pretty much gives away the ending.
0: Doesn't it, Just? And like yeah. I said, it's not a, I've read it and not a pr- particularly good book, not a particularly well written book, but it was important historically because it was really the first time someone put down in words in the form of fiction. We can kill everybody. And what right. does that mean? I don't believe for a second in his scenario that that's, you know, people don't work like that, but... That was the first sense of mutually assured destruction, you mean, that we had as Well, a past species? that, you know, mutually assured destruction, we get into the fully into the Cold War, was this idea of you hit us with nuclear weapons, we'll hit you with nuclear weapons. But the salted bomb, the cobalt bomb was, it doesn't matter who you hit, if you throw this stuff up in the atmosphere, remember we had been doing... Nuclear testing at this point and discovering that it doesn't come down for a long time. Yeah. Ultimately, the test ban treaty was this recognition of we are gradually putting more and more radiation into the atmosphere and we should stop. Mm. Right. Because it, it stays up there for quite a long time. Yeah. And so, uh, I think shoot provided a service in the sense of letting the public know this is still the 1950s. Remember atoms were going to rule the world. We we're going to have atomic powered cars and all this great stuff. This was the beginning of there are serious consequences of all of this. Another thing happened in 1957. Sputnik. All right. Because Sputnik really sets up the beginning of the Cold War in a big way. Right. Soviets are in
1: space. We got to get up there. They're spying on us. What are we going to do? We have to, uh, yeah. And you know, one of the proposals
0: was. A lot of paranoia. Let's detonate a nuclear weapon on the moon to show our power. Yeah, I'm kind of happy that in our universe, at least, in our timeline, we instead sent men up there and brought them back. I think that's a better outcome. But you talk about real the Cold War being on, you start with Sputnik. That's 57. And by 61, the Berlin Wall starts. Mm. They build the wall around the whole city. I just went and saw the memorial of that. Also in 61, the biggest explosion ever made by humans ever, the Tsar Bomba. Tell me about that. The SAR Bomba was a bomb developed by the Soviets. It was sort of their proof that they could build as good a weapon as anybody. It was uh, 59,000 pounds. This is a big bomb. Wow. Big bomb. Uh, they had to custom modify a Tu-95, which is the equivalent of their B-29, a massive aerial bomber, uh, to carry just this bomb. Extra fuel tanks took the doors off. Really hard to get this bomb up there. Um. They uh it flew it up to thirty five thousand feet over an island in the far uh, northern uh, Arctic Sea. Dropped it at thirty five thousand feet. It detonated at fourteen thousand feet. It had a parachute uh, on it to slow it down so that the aircraft had time to get away. It was about thirty miles away when the bomb actually went off. Wow. The bomb. This was a triple, a, a three stage bomb. So a fission ignite primary to a secondary fusion to a tertiary fusion. The detonation was fifty five megatons. Holy. Now, here's the scary part. They didn't use fission tampers in it. They were actually concerned about fallout. Remember, the Soviets were supposed to be the bad guys, but even their scientists figured out, this is going to be a big bomb, and it's going to be extremely damaging, and if we use fission tampers, we can get it even bigger. They figured they could get a yield over a 100 megatons if they used uranium tampers, but they used lead tampers, so they held it down to a mere 55 megatons, of which 97% of that yield was the fusion detonation. So... Relatively speaking, that was a very clean bomb. Yeah. However, it created a fireball five miles in diameter. Oh, my. The, they detonated it at 14,000 feet because uh, they wanted to maximize the blast. It never did actually touch the ground because the shock wave from it was so powerful, it pushed the fireball upward. It incinerated without touching the ground a two-mile circle on the ground. It leveled buildings 35 miles away. There would have been third-degree burns to anyone within 60 miles of that blast, and there were windows shattered from that explosion almost 600 miles away. The seismic shock, it would have been an 8.1 quake if they detonated on the ground, but it vibrated the planet. They were able to measure the wave from the bomb the third time it traveled around the planet. Wow. This is a big bomb. It created a mushroom cloud that reached 200,000 feet. The base of the cloud was 25 miles wide.
1: So the Soviets were saying, look, just in case you uh, were curious as to what we can do over here, now you know.
0: Yeah. This was the high watermark. This is the yep. largest explosion ever created by humans. It emitted as much radiation in the atmosphere as uh it was 10% of the total em- emissions of all of the explosions ever detonated. So every nuclear test ever done combined, this was one-tenth of that. Wow. It was a massive, massive explosion. And I think it scared them. It scared everyone. There's a guy named Andrei Sakharov, who was one of the designers of the bomb. And that was his turning point. They call him the uh, the Soviet Oppenheimer. Because Oppenheimer was an anti-nuke guy after building the bomb. You know, he's, he said, uh, I have become death. And uh, same thing happened to Sakharov. He actually ended up being put into jail as, an, as a dissident because he was so strongly against uh, nuclear weapons after that. He became a huge controls advocate. Wow. And they fought back. Uh, and in fact, realistically, you know, that's the point. That's 1961. You know, what happens next? Mm. 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. And that was scary as hell. Well, they put nuclear weapons in in Cuba, or they were going to. They'd set up to Yeah, and And that gets into this real situation of how do you defend against a nuclear weapon? You know, what can you do? Pretty quickly, the weapons get smaller. There's no reason to have a bomb that big. This 60,000-pound bomb is completely impractical. You can't move it around. One aircraft can only carry one of them. It travels very slowly, so it's easy to shoot down. It makes no sense. Right. Very quickly, bombs get smaller and smaller and smaller. Even by the, in, even in the 1960s, the 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 Mark 28 bomb, which the B-52 carried and carried eight of them, yeah. the maximum yield on it was 1.4 megatons. Because you just need a bomb that big. Again, we get back to what's the point of well, these weapons? And, you know,
1: nations sort of have learned this and come to grips with that existential reality. And then some have not. And I I remember it
0: was just in the
1: two thousands when India and Pakistan had a show a showdown. Do you yes. remember that?
0: Well, they developed their weapons independently in the nineteen seventies. But yeah, they actually did some nuclear testing. Effectively, they saber rattled at each other with they nuclear did. weapons, yeah, which is kind of terrifying.
1: And they had their own sort of, you know, we'll you know we're not afraid of you. We'll fight a nuclear war. You know right. the kind of uh, uh, stuff that was going on in the in the Cold War. And uh, the world was just like, are you crazy? I mean, how can you – haven't you learned anything from history? But then you also have these radical people who really, I think, don't understand the implications of nukes who want to use them yeah, still. Yeah, I think we've forgotten. We, you know, they still want to get their hands on nuclear weapons to, to further their cause.
0: Well, you know, you know, when you don't care if you survive, why do you care what damage you did? You know, the, and the reality of the saber-rattling that happened between Pakistan and India is they did sign a treaty. Yeah, that's true. You know, it, it progressed in the right direction. And that,
1: that brings me to a, a point, Richard, and we had this discussion because, you know, my whole family practically is an electric boat family. Yeah. You know, the uh, electric boat by General Dynamics where the submarines are built, I can look out the studio and see in the yard there. And um you made this point that, the nuclear submarine may have been responsible for saving more lives than we give it credit for
0: yes because it meant you know the reality is as terrifying as this whole scenario is we've never had another world war right and, and there's a pretty good reason when you if you get the guys back against the wall so that he has no reason not to use these weapons why wouldn't he use them yeah and so this concept of mutually assured destruction is insane, but it's also been safe so far. Right, that we we sort of expect that in the end, humans want to keep each other, want to stay alive, and so the fact that if you try and if you try and kill me, I'll kill you, uh, is been working so far. So and it, far. and the weapons race of this, the Cold War, was all about that. Right, right. The uh, they're there, the Benjamin Franklin class before it, and the Ohio class today. These are incredibly stealthy machines that are under the water. There's some under the water right now Mm. carrying a massive uh, amount of destructive force. And should uh, the United States be attacked that way, they can administer back a response that is basically unstoppable. And that's really what the Cuban Missile Crisis was about, is that if those weapons were put under Cuban islands, the Americans could not respond in time. Right. Right. You know the the game of detecting nuclear weapons, the the dew line and and the the whole radar system and and the ballistic missile early warning system, uh, which was satellites, were all about giving response time, fifteen to twenty five minutes warning time after a launch, so that you had a chance to respond. Mm. And there was no time to respond if they were in Cuba when yep. they were on the other side of the world in the Soviet Union. Mm. Yeah, you had that twenty five minutes, which right. was enough time for you to launch your weapons. Right. Right, either get the aircraft up or deploy the submarines. Um, for a long time, it was land-based weapons. Like all of the rockets that the America has used to lift satellites into space, for the most part, they're all XICBMs. They were all originally built to be fat, rapid-firing rockets, so that in that 20-minute window, you could fire them out of their la- uh, out of either from a a rail car or from a silo. They would get launched. Uh, that. Funny part is that makes them not particularly good satellite platforms, makes them expensive satellite platforms because they had features that they didn't need. One of them was a quick launch time, mm-hmm. you know, but it also advanced the technology. That race to make weapons that could be fired that quickly and fire them into space like that led to microcomputers. All the integrated circuit was developed for navigation systems for, for missiles. For nuclear weapons. Intel. That's the result. Right? Before that, Fairchild. Right? Fairchild Semiconductor. That's what they did. And the guys that formed Intel came from there. Yep. Um, that progression, you know, is, is where all that came from. For the most part, land-based weapons are gone for a variety of reasons. And and most nuclear weapons are gone. But the submarines continue because they are the ultimate unstoppable force. Right. They're hard to find and, and they're hard to get rid of. And uh, and they're very, very effective. But when, you know, the the real cascade that started back after this, the sarbamba, I thought you started seeing a pattern within a few years of backing off because in the effort to defend against nuclear weapons, they started developing the anti-ballistic missile systems. And the original ones, stuff like Nike Zeus, uh, were basically let's fire a nuke into the air and detonate it up near these weapons to destroy them. So the Spartan system in 1967, from the, the uh, on the American side, was to shoot down ICBMs with five megaton warheads in the high atmosphere, mm-hmm. with some serious consequences. Yeah. So uh, the first treaty related to there's a the first treaties related to nuclear weapons. The first one was the Non Proliferation Treaty and the Test Ban. So we and don't want other people when? to have nuclear weapons, so we're not going to sell them the technologies, and we're going to stop testing in the atmosphere. And that was what President. That's going back into the fifties, so that's way back there. Eisenhower, yeah, after Eisenhower, but but in in the in those early days, they yeah. they started that. Then they broke those rules regularly. But I think the ABM treaty in nineteen seventy two was really the first real treaty that said, okay, look, we really shouldn't be launching missiles to shoot down other missiles that explode nuclear warheads. Although the treaty did have you allowed to have one area that had that defense. Because the Soviet Union had built a defense system like that around Moscow. Mm-hmm. They were happy to irradiate other areas, but they wanted Moscow to survive no matter what. Right. And, of course, launching nukes to hit down nukes is stupid. But today, uh, the the U.S. military has the ground-based mid-course defense system, which is actually using a missile to hit another missile. And, it, of course, it's it's designed to protect against – the intent is to protect against uh, a, a crazy country like, say, North Korea – might be able to launch a weapon. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't it be good to be able to shoot that down? Uh, the, the Russians, because Soviet Union is gone now, are concerned about the system being deployed in Eastern Europe. Right. But that's that's part of the process. But we have had a series of treaties. So, you know, the, the anti-ballistic missile treaties goes back to 1972, and that was also part of what was called SALT-1, or the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties. So, you I know... Mean, and that was superseded by SALT-2, which, again, they started reducing weapons more and more and more. By the 1970s, uh, the U.S. had figured out how to do multiple independent reentry vehicles. So one missile and as many as 14 warheads could come from it. Yeah. And so that freaked everybody out. And, and so it's like, all right, let's make a deal. We're going to limit how much we do of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still have MIRVs, but not so many. Uh, where it really got interesting is when we started playing with intermediate-range missiles. So the same problem they had with the Cuban Missile Crisis, the missiles were too close. Uh, the Pershing two weapon system, uh, was an intermediate range weapon that had such a short response time. There was no way to defend against it. And they were going to position that in Turkey. Uh, and the, the Soviets had a counter for it in the SS 20. And again, it was like, well, we can't respond in time for this. It's just, it's setting us up for failure. So how about we just get rid of all of these? That was 1988. Mm-hmm. They actually eliminated that whole class of weaponry. They right. haven't built it since. Um. And now we have stockpiles
1: of aging weapons that are we're we're mostly concerned about them falling into the hands of of uh, of terrorists who want to use them for dirty bombs and things like that. Well, you're
0: exactly right. in At the end of the Cold War, so if you talk about nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety one, in that window as the Soviet Union collapsed and became the Russian Federation, uh, the u s. and other countries rushed to to aid that. In fact, up until about two years ago, the United States was buying radioactive material from Russia, right? To get to rid of it. it off the market. Yeah, to take it off the market so that you couldn't. They they would pay the highest price for it, and they've yeah. now bought it all. They've used it up. Uh, because the reality is, the U.S. has not developed uh, a nuclear weapon since 1991. That was the last new weapon system. Yeah. In fact, they the more modern land based system, what they call the MX Peacekeeper, they ended up scrapping that and keeping the old Miniman three running. Yeah. Uh, again, to just limit uh, the amount of, of weaponry going on.
1: That doesn't mean Russia still doesn't have nukes. In fact, they do. During this last uh skirmish here with the Ukraine, you know, it it came up in conversation many times that Russia still has enough power to level Europe with nuclear weapons. Absolutely.
0: Well, and uh in in 2002, the US re- withdrew from the ABM treaty, the one signed in 1972. So 30 years later they pulled out of it. Um and quite possibly because they were developing uh, the the ground based mid course system and they felt it would be in conflict with the ABM treaty, so just saying, hey, we're developing these defenses, so we're going to drop out of this treaty. The next day, the Russians dropped out of the START two treaty, mm. uh, and the START two treaty was big weapon reduction. So this yeah. was, there was a series of nuclear treaties signed between the U.S. And, and Russia in Salt one, Salt two, the INF treaty, START one, and START two. But at this particular moment in time. There are no significant weapon limiting treaties in place. Mm. Mm-hmm. They are all out they, as of really of 2002. Yep. Uh, s- now, that being said, why aren't we more afraid? Yeah. Because clearly people aren't that afraid. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that we know more about the Russians than we've ever known before. They're not the boogeyman they used to be. Right. They're they're people. Uh, you know, Selling gas mostly. Right. <laughs> selling oil and, and natural gas. And, uh, while they're certainly rattling sabers in, in the Ukraine, I think everybody has a sense that there's a limitation on, on the capability. And really, nuclear weapons appear to be obsolete. I think 1991 is a banner year for that because 1991 was Desert Storm. And right. what Desert, you know, there are no good wars, but De- Desert Storm was well televised. Yes, it was. And what Desert Storm really demonstrated was the ability of the U.S. military to hit any target they want at any time and destroy it. Which gets us back to, what did you want these things for in the first place? It was the video game war. Yeah. The CNN video game war. With ultra-precision targeting, right? Mm. If you can put a 2,000-pound bomb or fire a Tomahawk cruise missile and pick what window you put it through, if you can destroy any target you need to destroy with a conventional explosive, what do you need nuclear weapons for? Right. They're not usable weapons. They're Look at them. Usable. They haven't been used so far. Now, that we might just be playing Black Swan games right now. But the reality is we've demonstrated we don't need them. And so, we can't afford to use them.
1: The and consequences the, are too dire the consequences are too dire we, we we all want to survive we all want to come out the other side of the war emergent
0: well not dead and the, and the reality is that nuclear weapons are incredibly difficult to build. they're complex devices yeah and uh, far when it comes to terrorism we're far more likely to deal with a radiological bomb right just a dirty bomb right. So, they're like, really
1: interested in the material. They're not interested in the bombs, per yeah, se. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, Certainly,
1: if, a terrorist country, you know, or a terrorist organization doesn't have the sophistication to launch nuclear warheads.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, maybe they travel by truck Whatever. however yeah, it goes yeah, about sure. it. But the the bottom line here is it's not that simple to build. Uh, it is closely monitored. It is a pariah-type weapon. And, uh, and if you want to spread terror, radiology is a good way to do it because people are very afraid of irradiation. And it's what they're clearly fighting against today is how to keep that under control.
1: Richard, we have gone for an hour and 20 minutes here. I I'd, think it's time to
0: wrap. I knew it would be long and I knew it would be terrifying.
1: <laughs> it's terrifying. But we are
0: in a place now where we don't have a lot of treaties in the, in the way. There doesn't seem to be evidence that people are building new weapons per se. Not in that form. In fact, we're just building better defensive systems. Uh, but they're still very real. They're still very dangerous. And nobody really knows what state they are. There have been no tests in a long time, and uh, these weapons destroy themselves over time. So there's a big question as to whether they're functional or safe anymore. That's true. And let's just hope
1: there that the ones that are remaining are secure. Yeah, we'll see. All right, Richard. That I'm I'm sufficiently scared and a little bit pissed off.
0: Let's um. Yeah, let's pay a little more attention to the anti-nuke uh, efforts in the world and remind our. Are politicians that they could be doing better? This yep. is still important. And uh, on the next geek out, let's do something a little more lighthearted. Yeah, let's do something fun. All right, folks. If you have any comments on this, and I'm sure you do, Facebook, Google Plus, the Donnet Rocks website. We really want to hear from you, or just and, the, uh, the apps, right? Yeah, right go them the to apps. the apps. Talk to us about it. We make these things for you, and and we really appreciate. You know, we met a lot of folks at NBC who like these shows and ask us to do more, and ask us to do this one. So we've done it. There you go. And there will be more to come. We have delivered. All
1: right, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Danny Rocks.